Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Well Endowed Podcast. I'm Elizabeth Bonkink. And I'm Andrew Paul. This podcast is brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation, and we are a proud affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Edmonton is full of generous donors who've created endowment funds at ECF. These funds are carefully stewarded to generate money that support charities in Edmonton and beyond. On this podcast, we share stories about how these funds help strengthen our community, because it's good to be well endowed. On this episode, we sit down with Anna Maria Tremonti. Yes, the Anna Maria Tremonti. She hosted CBC's The Current for 17 years, and in that time brought us compelling interviews and important stories about politics, societal changes, and the personal journeys of individuals. Anna Maria is a seasoned foreign correspondent and war correspondent, having spent nearly 10 years covering international affairs. She's the holder of two Gemini Awards, and now she's wielding the medium of podcasts to explore new ways of telling stories and sharing ideas. We are pleased to announce that this amazing journalist will be our guest speaker at our annual meeting. Stay tuned to the end of the show for more details on that event. I had the privilege of speaking with Anna Maria about how she approaches change, her illustrious career, and her journey in speaking out about surviving domestic violence. Welcome, Anna Maria Termonti. Thank you for joining us. So the one thing we asked you to talk about at our annual meeting is change. What's your philosophy on change? Uh, change is a good thing. <laughs> um, you know, change is inevitable. Um, and so my philosophy, look at not, and all, not all change is obviously good. Um, but my personal kind of view of how I live my life is that um, I have to keep on changing. I have to keep looking around me and seeing what's happening and change. You know, I used to, when I was a lot younger in Windsor and driving and my, you know, it was a new driver and my dad would say to me, go with the flow. Like, you know, like, like you don't have to speed, but go with the flow. Like they're all going this way, keep going. So it's, it's that kind of thing. Like you have to be open to change. And sometimes, sometimes the scariest change can actually create the greatest opportunity. And so, um, my view is that change is not necessarily bad. And if there is bad change, um, I can only hope that I or anyone else has some support around them to get through it. Yeah, we have some changes coming up at the Community Foundation. We, Our CEO is leaving after 17 years. He's retiring. We're also getting a new board chair. So uh, that's why we chose this topic this year is because it's it is a year of change for us. And and that's kind of been my philosophy is just be open to it. And uh, I, I like your go with the flow idea. So you did start your TV career in Edmonton. Do you have any favorite stories about your time here? Oh, gosh, so many. Um, I, I would just before I tell you that, though, I just would say renewal is a good thing, too. Right. I have made decisions in my career to kind of change um, to something very different because renewal is good for me. But also like when I left the current at CBC Radio. Renewal is good for that program, you know, and so, you know, we need to keep moving and giving other people opportunities in the space that we have occupied for a while. Um, I had so many stories in Edmonton, you know, uh, I got to Edmonton and I was in radio um, and I couldn't get a full time radio job and I ended up working in TV in the same building. 
and it was uh, really, it was a big learning experience. I covered the legislature, I covered education, I covered medicine. It was a time of real fight between the province and uh, the federal government. It was also a time of just a lot going on. It was, um, you know, there were cruise missile tests in, um, I have to remember now, where they were at the Primrose uh, Weapons Base. And we would, you know, we would go up to see what was going on. It was just so much happening in, in northern Alberta, you know, like from Edmonton and above, because sort of the people at CBC Calgary covered the rest of it. So I was on the road a lot. Um, I made sure I had warm boots in my car all the time in the winter. Um, there was a lot of disaster. I covered floods in Edmonton. I covered blowouts. I covered disasters. Um, it was really a place where... I saw a lot of tragedy and I saw a lot of humanity in the people who would gather around and, and help those people who, were, who had been hurt or disadvantaged or victims of a disaster. And, you know, the last big story I did in Edmonton for um, CBC Radio, one of the last ones, not the last one, um, was uh, with the current going to Fort McMurray and, and the stories of so many people helping people and getting out and with the big fire. And, and again, it was that humanity that comes through, right? Um, so it taught me a lot in those early days of my career about, about seeing the humanity behind the big story and understanding that individuals are affected by what goes on. And as a journalist, you know, you, you want to respect that. You don't just want to tell the story. You want to respect the fact that there are people going through sometimes one of the worst crises, traumas of their life. You had talked a little bit about the humanity, and then I know you did some some work overseas. Uh, how did being a woman and working in crisis situations overseas affect you and affect the reporting? Well, by the time I was working as, uh, you know, overseas in, in uh, foreign or international bureaus, I, I really was interested in how things affected regular people. I was not so interested in following the big names and the big leaders. Um, I was interested in following what happened to the people who live around them in those countries like who are affected by their policies or by the way the world is turning in, in where they are. And, and, you know, you end up doing when you do stories and you're working internationally, the stories you were sending back home are big stories. You're not there to cover you know, small stories, you're there to cover stories that have resonance on a world scale. And what I was learning was that, you know, every, every big story is also a small story, that it affects regular people. And, you know, uh, I remember being in Bosnia, uh, in rural Bosnia, or, or a smaller city in Bosnia, actually, not quite rural, but outside of Sarajevo. And uh, it was snowing, giant flakes of snow. And the war was gosh, I'm thinking a year and a half into the war, at least by then. And um, people were selling whatever they had. And there was a woman who had a, a, an entire set of silverware, you know, the trays and all the fancy teapots and all of that stuff out and she kept brushing the snow off it. She was trying to sell it to, you know, get some money to feed her family. And, and I thought, you know, you could, you could have that tea set anywhere. It was just another example to me that how much we are alike, no matter where we live in the world, how much we react the same way to trauma and how important it is to talk to people 
as if they're there, uh, you know, like uh, because they are there, but to talk to people, not because they're not B-roll, they're not just a clip for you because they give you a little piece of their life. And so it, it really did affect my reporting. I, I did a lot of work with women who had, um, who had been abused. I, I, I did more actually after the war than during the war because you, I, I couldn't find them at the time of the war. Um, and it mattered me, to me to do those stories. And wherever I went, I understood that, you know, in the midst of violence in sort of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you, you have a, a story of violence, you have a story of, you know, one very well-equipped army and one not, and you have suicide bombers and you have others, but you also have regular people who are affected, who actually want to live together, who want to find some peace. And so you have to kind of keep going down the layers and down the layers. And I learned more about that but it all comes back again to that that sense of humanity and treating people you know wanting to hear what they think wanting to hear what they want for themselves and for their families for their children coming down to it we're all human and we all have basic needs and wants but along those lines with what's happening in the ukraine if you could be there now what types of stories would you want to tell uh, well, I think, you know, the, the colleagues that I have are there doing exactly the stories I would do. There's, um, you know, there is the inevitable stuff you have to do about that, like the front lines, but the front line is a city. The front line is not some trench with just a field, right? I mean, this is warfare in people's homes. And if you look at the pictures, you can see where you see like living rooms blasted out and you see people living in basements of apartment structures. And so, you know, this is a war where the front line is a patchwork quilt. This is a war where um, the devastation, every building you see that's devastated, there were people in there, there were people living there. And you can see those shots, right? Where, you know, you, you can see them, the wall of the front of an apartment block is blown out and you see tables and chairs and you see drapes flopping. And um, it's just such a reminder that, you know, the, the real casualties of war are the civilians and the, the civilians caught in the middle. Um, and in Ukraine, it's um, the, like the idea that they were, they were not expecting this, they, that the people fighting for them, some of them are not trained. They're just going because suddenly they need to be there. You know, I would, I would cover exactly the way people are covering. They're spending a lot of time at the refugee centers they're spending time with the people who get out. Um, Margaret Evans of CBC did this amazing piece um, not that long ago about a woman who's like riding her bike to, she's a social worker and she visits people in their homes and she keeps on doing this in a city under siege. And, um, you know, they start to follow her and then there are bomb blasts and they all have to take shelter. And then when things are quiet, she gets back on her bicycle and she gets back and does that stuff, right? Because you have all these people whose lives are being turned upside down, but they still have to do what they need to do. They're doctors, they're nurses, they're, you know, they're social workers, they're neighbors who want to help. They have to stand in line for food. They don't know if a bomb's going to come in and get them. So, you know, those are the stories. And that's why people are, you know, people in Canada are so compelled to care, right? They understand that this is, you know, this is just, it's a city where suddenly, you know, things are being flattened and people are dying and people are being put in great danger. And it, it's like Afghanistan, you know, I mean, Afghanistan, um, again, these, these stories when the Taliban came back through and took over, 
the country so quickly and took over Kabul to see all of those people so desperate at the airport. I mean, you know, it's it, it's just it's heart wrenching. Um, and I, that's why I believe that that international reporting is more important, that we do have to care what happens to people in other parts of the world. And sometimes they may be more relatable because of our own personal ancestral backgrounds, but but they are relatable on the level of humanity, no matter where they are. And, you know, this is a country um, this is a country that has people from everywhere. And so, you know, um, it's really important that we make sure that that we tell people what are, what's happening everywhere, as in as many places as we can. I mean, there's still other things going on and we don't shine a light in, but yeah, it's important to do that. Yeah, definitely. And we talk a lot about the humanity and, you know, the individual human, and it does feel like sometimes some things get more light shone on them than others. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, though, is how journalism has changed since you left school. It's changed more not from school. Um, it's changed from just just being in the business for so long. I mean, I was uh, I got out of university just before my twenty first birthday, and I moved to Nova Scotia, and I worked in radio. And um, you know, we were still working with um, not in the field. We had little cassette recorders, but you still work with reel to reel tapes. I mean, I learned to cut you know with a razor blade. I, I learned to splice and. Uh, you know, CBC Edmonton in 1983, 84, and a little later was still shooting film. So, you know, you would, I, we had two, what we called ENG cameras, you know, electronic news gathering, and they were tethered to a great big recorder that the sound man carried and that the cameraman had to, and they were all men. I, they, there are women who shoot now, but it wasn't at the time. I, I didn't run into any at the time back then. And so, like you know, you would literally get your film back half an hour before airtime. Even computers, right? My first computer was in Edmonton. It was a it was a Tandy Radio Shack computer. It was connected to nothing. There was no internet, you know. So, so the technology. Speaking of change, I mean, the technology just kept changing and changing, right? So that, I mean, now you can you know you can talk on your iPhone. You can file if you have to. I mean, there's still I I still believe that photographers are people who have what I call a great eye. You know, they put their eye to the lens, whether it's a still camera or a moving picture, and they see what many people can't see. So, uh, you know, um, in these times of changing technology, I still think the photographer is important. But, but a lot has changed. When I covered the war in Bosnia, we had satellite phones the size of two giant suitcases that you have to lug in and out and edit suites, you'd have to literally bring all this stuff with you because you didn't have, um, you know, the equipment otherwise. And you'd have to go to the television building, which was bombed out. Um, and you would do this in every country. You'd go to their major broadcast center and you would feed out on a satellite that your company had booked time on for thousands of dollars and you'd feed out your two-minute story. Now, you know, you can file through the computer. So it just kept getting easier to go places. The war in Syria was really interesting because you had, when the war in Syria began, the most important footage out of there was coming from Syrians who were uploading what was happening down the street from where they lived. And so that's the other, there's a great democratization of information, right? You can get all that information out there. Um, we can have access to it. 
you can't always verify it easily, but then, you know, later you can. Um, uh, if you go even closer to, the, if you look at uh, the organization Bellingcat that, that has done so much important investigative work, uh, the guy who started that began by going through, like just looking at all the videos that were being uploaded out of Syria and figuring out about the use of barrel bombs and other things, just because of the sheer volume of video coming out, you could, you could understand what was going on. So there's, you know, there's more data reporting. Um, you can reach people on social media and not just by phone. Um, I still am a believer, and I think most journalists would agree that you have to go there, right? Depending on what the story is, it's good to sit and look someone in the eye and talk to them. But increasingly as well with war zones, we saw this with Syria, you know, um, the, the danger to journalists is very high. You saw journalists killed and beheaded. And if you are... Um, if you are a freelance journalist, that's really hard to navigate on your own. And if you are a journalist with legacy media, um, you have to have security. They have insurance. They can't send you in. They're going to, you know, they, that, that's a really dangerous decision to make. So then they train you. And so all of that stuff, that was not happening when I started in journalism. Um, what has not changed is the push for accountability, for truth, the telling of stories of people who need to be heard. That's kind of at the core of what journalism is, and that has not changed. The technology on how to gather that and how to disseminate that has changed. And while it's changed for journalists, it's also changed for the propagandists, the people who would like to misinform you, the people who are really good at making you think that they sound sane, like they, you know, that that blue is actually, you know, yellow, and it's not. You know, that the sky is purple when it's blue. Yeah, it's 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 difficult to navigate for a lot of people when social media has taken over mainstream news in many cases. Um, and I mean, it's 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 wonderful that the like, mainstream news is now on, you know is on social media trying to to direct that, but it, it it's hard to navigate for a lot of people. Um, one of the things I know that you've done recently is your podcasts. You've got the the two, the uh, Welcome to Paradise and more. Tell me about why you decided to move to podcast format. I do like change. Um, and I had been at The Current for quite a while. And um, podcasting was already a thing. Um, but I was interested in the telling of serialized stories, longer stories um, with podcasting. And, you know, I could do radio documentaries, which I loved. I could do really like, you know, we had great editorial freedom at The Current to do stories that we felt mattered, to do all sorts of accountability interviews and everything else. Um, but I, the story of Welcome to Paradise, which is the story of, um, of me in an abusive relationship and how it followed me even though I got out after a year, was a story I had wanted to tell for a very long time and I didn't know how I wanted to tell it. I, like I thought, I didn't mull over it every day, but I was trying to figure that out. And when I um, started paying more attention to the nuts and bolts of podcasting, I thought that's how I want to do that. And I was at a point in my career where I could step away and really just concentrate on that and try to work in podcasting going forward. I had been, when I left The Current, I'd been there for 17 years. Um, I had never been anywhere for 17 years. <laughs> Maybe in my childhood home, a little longer, but um um, so it was time for a change for me to kind of do something a little different where I didn't have the daily, the, you know, the daily push for 
a lot of other interviews and I just wanted to concentrate on that. Um, and I felt that for me, I know how to tell an audio story. So I thought, okay, so you can tell a serialized story. It wasn't a slam dunk. I had to convince them, uh, them being the people at the CBC who choose the podcasts. But, um, but in the end, I mean, they were, they were very um, welcoming and, um, you know, wanted to hear that story. But that was a process. I, when I first went to see Leslie Merklinger, who runs CBC Podcasts, um, she thought it was great right away. But it took, took a couple of years to go from me talking to her and then writing a proposal to actually, you know, rolling up my sleeves and doing it. I, when I was listening to your podcast, I, you know, I was in a couple episodes before we learned that your husband, your ex-husband had passed away. And that was in the process of you doing the podcast and coming through all this. Did that make it harder or easier to do the podcast? Depends on who you talk to, I guess. <laughs> um, it made it, I had every intention of contacting him. I say in the podcast, I was actually ready to send the letter that's been sitting in my drafts, right? And I get a note from his sister who had little contact with me at all. So it was kind of very surprising to get her email. And um, I didn't know what to think. Um, I was kind of glad I hadn't sent the note like the week before because apparently he died of a heart attack. And I think oh, somebody would think that I gave him the heart attack by sending him a note. But I actually wanted to hear how he processed that. I felt that I had enough distance. I, I mean, you know, I, I talk about this long tail of of intimate partner violence, of how the shame and the self-blame hangs around in ways that sometimes you can't even identify. You just, it's always, you know, you, you think about it again and you're going, why am I still thinking about this? You know, and it's got to do with that or it did for me. Um, but I thought that it would be valuable to hear because I, I, you know, I mean, this was a man I love, right? This was a man I fell in love with. And I was like, what, what were you thinking? And I wanted to know if I could learn anything from him. Um, I don't know if he would have agreed. Part of me felt that he would, that he would have been willing to talk to me. Um, but I don't know, because the family reaction, the immediate family reaction to my doing it when they found out was not good. And, um, you know, he might have tried to stop me. I have no idea. It, it feels very brave because I think for a lot of domestic violence survivors, the fear of going back to a situation is ultimate. Like you don't know how he's going to react. It could have been deadly. Anything could have happened. Uh, it's, it feels very vulnerable. And another part that felt vulnerable for me was your conversations with your dad. For me, it was very poignant. It felt a lot like hard conversations I've had to have with my dad. But how was that telling him that you've been through this? Well, I mean, he knew I waited until I was out of that relationship for two years. Um, and I told him and my mom, or we talked about it because my friend actually told him because I didn't know how to tell them. But, um, but I never got into the nitty gritty, right? Like we talked in generalities and we, I, with my mom, I think we talked more about how I felt about it all, you know, like, so we would talk in, but, but I would never get really specific about what happened. I just started talking to my dad about it. I told him what I was doing. I asked him, you know, I mean, we talked about it first and then I told him I wanted to record him. And, you know, my dad's pretty funny because he goes off on a tangent about, you know, growing up in the mountains and all this stuff, which is nice. Um, but, but 
I learned stuff from him too, you know, and I, you hear that in the podcast. I mean, there are things he tells me, I go, whoa, I didn't know that. So, um, you know, despite the fact that we have always been a close family, there are things that we just wouldn't have talked about in the great detail if I wasn't doing this. And my dad, you know, he's 97 now, and I'm very lucky because he's 97 and lucid and, and mobile. And, um, you know, we talk twice a day at least. And um, I think that um, it, it just, it really helped me to be able to talk to him. But, you know, you talk about going back because he, and you, know, you remember from the podcast, he's like, don't do it. Like, what are you doing? Like, that's, you know, that was then, this is now, don't go there. And a lot of people will tell you that. And, and um, in the end, I realized I couldn't just go knock on a door, right? You have to figure out. Um, and, you know, even writing an email, the email was going to be very, you know, just kind of high, haven't talked in a while, I'd like to connect, and then I would go further, right? But, and, and remember, I had already been out of that for like 40 years. Um, but absolutely. And in fact, I've, I've gotten a lot of letters from women since that podcast started, including from women I know, or I knew once that we, that I never knew that about them. And, you know, um, you know, they don't always know where he is. They don't know, you know, like there are still people looking over their shoulder. There are people who, you know, uh, tried to go back and he didn't like, it's really, it's a hard thing. And you heard Jane Moncton Smith, who's the homicide expert. She's not an expert in intimate partner violence, although she's very, she really understands coercive control. Her expertise, she will tell you, is homicide. And she says, look at this is, this is about people who, if they, if those steps continue, they become homicidal, they become murderers. So no, if you got away from somebody who has the potential to be a murderer, do not go back. Yeah, it's, uh, like I said, it, it felt very brave. And it's like, wow, it, how could you do that? Like I, when I was listening, I'm like, how could you do this? And then when I heard he had passed, I thought, I wonder if that made it easier, which is why I wanted to ask you that question. But uh, you also said at one point that you felt like you were down a rabbit hole, that you didn't even realize that this was as bad as it was. What is advice that you would give to someone else who's there? I, well, um, yeah, I think a lot of people think, oh, what's happening to me isn't as bad as what's happening to someone I read about. You know, I can, um, if you think it's bad, it is bad. It's okay. And it doesn't have to be the worst of the bad. Um, you don't deserve to be treated like that. You know, um, intimate partner violence comes in many forms too, Randy, because of this coercive control that a person has over you. And it can be physical and emotional and psychological or a combination of that. It can be financial. It can be, um, you know, controlling who your friends are, where, you know, where you go with the kids, all of that stuff. And um, um, if it, you know, if it seems bad to you, then it is bad. And, um, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not the, the expert to go to for the help, but there are, as you know, in every community now, there are, there are resources to help people in this situation who want help and who want help finding a way out. And we also know that when someone leaves their partner, um, that, you know, that becomes almost more dangerous than when they were still in the home. Because now, again, that's part of that, those eight steps of coercive control that can lead to murder. Now you've really challenged that control. 
you know, people say, why don't you leave? Because you can't leave because it's like a kidnapping. It's not, it's, um, it's, it's not that anybody likes it. It's that they're figuring out how to get out, but they are, it is a, it is a pattern of behaviors that controls them. Yeah. The safety is, is such a big part of that. And I think so many organizations, that's where the place they come from is be safe first and we'll work out the rest. So thank you so much for sharing that. I have one last question for you. You've had, you know, such a long, illustrious career. What's next for you? Um, I will probably work on a few more podcasts. I have some other things I want to do. I am training a puppy right now and I'm the puppy's winning. <laughs> puppy's training me. So I'm, you know, I'm taking a bit of time to do other things. Um, but I, I want to keep being part of the conversation around intimate partner violence and I would like to um, continue to find stories that can amplify what's happening to other people in order that we understand better what's going on around us. A very warm thank you to Anna Maria Tremonti for generously sharing her time and experiences with us. If you're experiencing domestic violence, you're not alone. Consider reaching out to organizations like Today's Centre at todayscentre.ca. We'll have a link in our show notes, along with some other resources. We'll also have a link to Anna Maria's podcast, Welcome to Paradise, where you can hear more about her journey. Anna Maria will be our guest speaker at Edmonton Community Foundation's annual meeting on June 7. If you'd like to attend, head on over to our show notes for further details on how to RSVP. And we'll have links to ECF's new web show, our upcoming granting deadlines, and the latest on our blog. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks so much for sharing your time with us. Yes, thank you. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please share it out. And consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews help new listeners find our show, and we really appreciate the feedback. You can also connect with us on Facebook, where you can share your thoughts and see some pictures. Thanks again for tuning in. We've been your hosts, Andrew Paul. And Elizabeth Bonking. Until Until next next time. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation and is an affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. The show is edited by Lisa Pruden. You can visit our website at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter at the ECF. Our theme music is by Octavo Productions. And as always, don't forget to visit Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org. Well Endowed.